Before I start this week's episode of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, just the usual note of thanks to Sora Shimazaki at Pexels, who took the photograph which adorns the cover art of the podcast. Let's crack on with it. Hello and welcome to episode 61 of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. I'm your host, Chris Kirkbride. It's been a decent week this week with a good range of money laundering stories, some bribery and anti-corruption news, and the usual roundup of cyber attack news with continuing repercussions for Latitude and Capita. So let's crack on with it as ever. All the links that I mention in the podcast description can be found there. Now, let's start with sanctions. This week's sanctions roundup starts in the United Kingdom, where the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation, or OFSI, has added one entry and amended two others on the consolidated list of sanctioned individuals. Additionally, an entry has been made on the Somalia sanctions, financial sanctions list, and two further amendments under the Russian financial sanctions regime. The UK sanctions list, along with the Russia notice, updated Russia financial sanctions list, Somalia notice, and updated Somalia sanctions list can be found in the podcast description. In addition to these changes, OFSI has published a blog this week assessing the Trust Services sanctions five months on from their implementation. The blog post, as well as the information pages relating to the sanctions, that is the Trust Services sanctions, can be found in the podcast description. Now, In news which is not entirely unrelated to the United Kingdom, this week Ukraine announced that it's imposed sanctions on Alexander Lebedev following a decree signed by President Zelensky. I say this news is not unrelated to the UK because the Lebedevs, Alexander and his son Evgeny, who of course sits as a lord in the upper chamber of the United Kingdom Parliament, have close connections to the former UK Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. Alexander Lebedev was sanctioned by the Canadian government last year, but both remain free, that is, Alexander and Evgeny, remain free of sanction by the UK government. It remains to be seen whether this move by the Ukrainian administration will spur the UK government to shift its position, but my sense is that it's unlikely to do so, especially since its ally, its more established ally, Canada, couldn't persuade it to change. In other news from Ukraine, its government has also imposed sanctions on the Islamic Republic of Iran in respect of trade in a range of military and dual-use goods. In the United States, the Department of the Treasury Office of Foreign Assets Control has sanctioned Arvin Cloud, the Iranian technology company, together with two senior employees and an affiliate company of Arvin Cloud in the United Arab Emirates. The reason for the sanctions are because of the role that Arvin Cloud has played in censoring the internet in Iran. Link to that announcement in the podcast description. The final piece of sanctions news this week comes from the United Nations, where the Security Council has extended sanctions on South Sudan for a further year. Link to the press release is in the podcast description. Now we move away from sanctions to fraud. It's been a relatively quiet week on the fraud front this week, but it doesn't mean that the news that there is isn't any less interesting. We'll start in the UK, where Lloyds Banking Group has highlighted the problem of social media and its facilitation of fraud. Of particular note 
are the Meta-owned platforms of Facebook and Instagram, where the Lloyds report states that someone falls a victim to a purchase scam on one or other of those platforms every seven minutes. This news echoes a story which we covered in episode 58 of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast from UK Finance, which drew attention to the link between fraud and social media platforms. As we reported in that episode, and this is a quote from what I said then, the the UK Finance Annual Report for 2023 found that over 1.2 billion was stolen through fraud in the UK, with around 80% of those cases originating online. Of those 80%, social media platforms accounted for the greatest number of online fraud cases. Around three quarters of online fraud starts on social media. Now, The momentum behind all social media platforms doing something to address the issue is clearly building. There's a lot of this happening. The news wires are always buzzing with some story or other from one week to another. But it may take a little more coordination for something a bit more solid to take place. Sticking with the UK, the insolvency service, which is our friend, which is quite often doing things in relation to COVID scammers, has issued a warning to investors and its customers about an increase in fraudulent activity through recovery room scams, with impersonation being central to it. It's understood that fraudsters are impersonating employees of the insolvency service by email, phone calls and letters. As the press release provides, recovery room scams usually follow an investment scam where victims have already lost money. Victims are cold called by fraudsters who pretend to be from a different company. High-pressure tactics are then used to obtain upfront charges or fees, described as, for example, tax, solicitor's fees and administrative fees. This can result in losses that can be greater than the initial investment loss. Link to the full press release is, of course, in the podcast description. Two more stories and then we can move on from fraud this week. The other major story from the UK, which you will have picked up on because... It's such a global brand, but anyway, it's the Premier League's successful private prosecution of a gang which sold discounted streams of Premier League games to subscribers for £10 per month. I think it costs about 80 quid to subscribe to all of the different providers of football from the Premier League. Anyway, this venture netted the individuals concerned around £7 million, just over £7 million, which allowed subscribers to watch football during the traditional blackout period for football matches in the United Kingdom of 2.45pm to 5.15pm. Anyone who knows has been on a foreign holiday will be able to watch 3pm kickoffs in those countries because they're not affected by this blackout. Anyway, the five men who orchestrated the fraud have received prison sentences. Now here, I think it's a, an interesting point about how it, it's keen, very keen to protect its brand because this was, a, as I said, a private prosecution. <clears throat> Don't mess with the Premier League. And finally, on fraud this week, the European Prosecutor's Office has announced, following efforts by the Lithuanian Financial Crime Investigation Service, a number of searches and the arrest of 27 individuals on suspicion of involvement in a fraudulent enterprise involving the submission of false applications for project funding on behalf of young farmers. The link to the press release can be found in the podcast description. That's it for fraud this week. Now we turn to bribery and anti-corruption, where it's been quite 
a busy week. There's a decent amount of interesting stories. So we'll start with the United Kingdom, where Entain Group, which is the owner of Ladbrokes and Coral, which are bookmakers in the United Kingdom, which is working on two fronts following an investigation into the activity of the group's former Turkish-facing online betting and gaming business. The group announced this week that it's continuing to cooperate with the Crown Prosecution Service in the UK and His Majesty's Revenue and Customs over allegations of bribery which concern the failure to prevent bribery offence under Section 7 of the Bribery Act 2010. There are some others, other offences which are also being considered as well. Of course, the Section 7 offence, the failure to prevent bribery offence, is the corporate offence of failure to prevent bribery. The Entain Group press release, which is linked in the podcast description, provides It is not possible at this stage to say how the investigation into the company will conclude. Whilst prosecution of a group entity or entities which may defend the action successfully or be convicted remains a possibility, the group is seeking to conclude deferred prosecution agreement negotiations with the Crown Prosecution Service. Negotiations remain ongoing and any resolution will be subject to judicial approval. Well, indeed. While the company cannot say at this stage what the consequences of the investigation will be, it's likely that they will include a substantial financial penalty, which is yet to be determined. The company cannot identify reliably at this stage the size of any financial penalty. Since the investigation first commenced, the group has undertaken a comprehensive review of anti-bribery policies and procedures and has taken account to strengthen its wider compliance programme and related controls. Well, that might have been imposed upon them anyway if they hadn't already done it. Uh, Which was quite an interesting story, that one. So it's clearly trying to get a DPA, a Deferred Prosecution Agreement, for this Section 7 offence, which is very common. We've looked at that previously on the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. But the investigation is ongoing and we'll look forward to seeing more information on this as Entain Group certainly looks to resolve it in that way. The other bribery and anti-corruption news comes from the European Parliament where MEPs have proposed, MEPs are members of the European Parliament, have proposed reforms to protect democratic institutions and the integrity of the European Parliament. The MEPs urged the concrete adoption by draft legislation of President Metzola's 14-point reform suggestion made in February this year, which was when all that stuff about the alleged corruption in the European Parliament with certain members being flagged for their links with, uh, I think it was Qatar, um, all that stuff arose then, and that's when the 14-point reform suggestion was proposed. Overall, the reform suggests enhancing whistleblower protection, amplifying and clarifying conflicts of interest rules, rules against the recruitment of former MEPs by high-risk foreign actors, and a strengthened security culture. Linked to the press release from this week's hearing of MEPs from the Special Committee on Foreign Interference, as well as President Metzola's 14-point plan, press release from February, can be found in the podcast description. Now that's it for bribery and anti-corruption. We now turn to money laundering, where it's been quite a busy week. Now, we'll start, as we did last week, with the institutions of the European Union. First, the European Union Agency for Criminal Justice Corporation has announced this week that authorities in Italy and Spain have undertaken coordinated action to close down an active international money laundering network. The network was used to launder the proceeds of drug trafficking. Secondly, cities across the European Union continue to jockey for position over the right to host the bloc's new anti-money laundering authority. The latest country, or I should say city, to indicate interest in becoming a candidate city is Madrid, the Spanish capital. 
The application process hasn't been opened yet, but expect all the usual suspects to be on it. And finally this week from the European Union, the European Banking Authority, the EBA, has announced a public consultation on amendments to the guidelines on money laundering and terrorist financing risk factors to include crypto asset service providers, or CASPSs. The press release provides the EBA is proposing to amend its money laundering and terrorist financing risk factors guidelines to set common regulatory expectations of the steps crypto asset service providers should take to identify and mitigate these risks effectively. The amendments introduce new sector-specific guidance for CASPs, as they're known, crypto asset service providers, which highlights factors which may indicate the CAP's exposure to higher or lower money laundering and terrorist financing risk. CASPs should consider these factors when carrying out the money laundering and terrorist financing risk assessments of their business and customers at the outset and during the business relationship. The guidelines also explain how they should adjust their customer due diligence in line with those risks. Furthermore, the amendments include guidance to other credit and financial institutions on risks to consider when engaging in a business relationship with a CASP or when they are otherwise exposed to crypto assets. The consultation is open until the 31st of August 2023 and the EBA will hold a virtual public meeting on the consultation paper this coming Wednesday, the 7th of June, from 2pm to 4pm Paris time. Link to the announcement which contains the consultation paper and the link to sign up to the virtual public meeting is in the podcast description. Now, we turn to the Financial Action Task Force, which has published its mutual evaluation report for Qatar this week. The headlines from the press release include the following... The FATF mutual evaluation of Qatar highlights that the country has a good understanding of the money laundering and terrorist financing risks it faces, but it needs to improve understanding of more complex forms of money laundering and terrorist finance. Qatar has implemented a risk-based approach to the assessment of money laundering and terrorist financing risks and the supervision of the financial sector. Risk-based supervision of the financial sector is improving, but at an early stage. Qatar has made positive and sustained progress in collecting beneficial ownership information for its unified register, which is close to completion. However, there are still not sufficient controls to ensure that the information collected remains accurate and up-to-date. Qatar's Financial Intelligence Unit is well-equipped and accesses and analyzes a wide range of information. However, Qatar's sophisticated analysis capabilities are not used to their fullest extent to identify money laundering and terrorist financing. So, a bit of a curate's egg there for Qatar. To read the press release and the mutual evaluation report in full, go to the link in the podcast description. To Australia now, where the Australian Transaction Reports and Analysis Centre, or OSTRAC, as it's more commonly known, has issued a $450 million Australian dollar penalty to casino operator Crown in relation to money laundering and countering terrorist financing failings. The list of its failings are that it failed appropriately to assess the money laundering and terrorism financing risks they faced and to identify and respond to changes in risk over time. It did not have appropriate risk-based systems and controls in their anti-money laundering and countering the terrorist financing programs to mitigate and manage 
the money laundering and terrorism financing risks they faced. They failed to establish an appropriate framework for board and senior management oversight of their AML and CTF programs. Did not have a transaction monitoring program that was appropriate to the nature, size and complexity of their business. Had an enhanced customer due diligence program that lacked appropriate procedures to ensure higher risk customers were subjected to extra scrutiny. It did not conduct appropriate ongoing customer due diligence on a range of specific customers who presented higher money laundering risks. A court hearing is listed for the 10th and 11th of July, where the proposed settlement will be considered. Link to the Ostrak press release is in the podcast description. And finally this week to, or well, on money laundering anyway, to the UK, where the National Crime Agency, the United Kingdom's Financial Intelligence Unit, has published updated guidance for the submission of better quality suspicious activity reports, or SARS. The link to that can be found in the podcast description. Now, a little bit of regulatory news before we end this week's edition of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast by looking, as ever, at cyber attack news. The main regulatory news is drawn from a speech given by Therese Chambers, who is the Joint Executive Director of Enforcement and Market Oversight at the Financial Conduct Authority in the UK. The speech was wide-ranging, but it broadly uh, amounted to an imperative that authorised institutions should do the right thing and model good behaviour, as we try to do to our children, because there will be nowhere to hide when it comes to enforcement as aligned to the Financial Conduct Authority strategy. In terms of punishment, it will come as no surprise that the Financial Conduct Authority says that the punishment should fit the crime. If it didn't say that, then the FCA itself would be open to challenge. Anyway, it was noted that in the last financial year, the Financial Conduct Authority imposed financial penalties of £216 million, secured the conviction of four people, with at least 20 individuals currently facing criminal charges following Financial Conduct Authority action. Additionally, there are some 71 active open investigations into suspected insider dealing. If you want to read the speech in full, it's not particularly long, then you'll find it in the podcast description. Now we end this week, as done every week for a while now, on a roundup of cyber attack news. We'll look at some new things that have happened and some institutions that are still experiencing the fallout from a cyber attack. So earlier this week, it was announced that websites of the government of Senegal had been the subject of a cyber attack. The, ha- the hackers, called the Mysterious Team, caused the distributed denial of service attack to shut down a number of sites. To Greece now, where a cyber attack on the Greek Research and Technology Network caused chaos during Monday's school exams. In response, the Supreme Court public prosecutor, Isidorus Dogiokos, announced an investigation into the cyber attack. Finally, a new cyber attack news this week, finally on new cyber attack news this week, once more targeting Israel, actually, and we've noted a number of attacks on critical infrastructure and so on in Israel over previous weeks of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. There was an attempt on Israel's Iron Dome missile defence system. It suggested that the attackers were based in Indonesia and that the attack was in solidarity with Palestine. In terms of news from cyber attacks experiencing continued fallout, let's go back to Capita. (laughs) It's once again 
the focus of news stories this week, suggesting that 90-0 organisations have reported data breaches related to information which was held by Capita in the provision of its outsourcing services. And there have been a lot of stories, human interest stories in the news this week about individuals who've been informed that their personal data has been compromised by this cyber attack on Capita. In relation to Capita, the Information Commissioner's Office in the UK issued a statement on the Capita cyber attack. The short statement provides, We're aware of two incidents concerning Capita regarding a cyber attack in March and the use of publicly accessible storage. We're receiving a large number of reports from organisations directly affected by these incidents and we're currently making inquiries. We're encouraging organisations that use Capita's services to check their own position regarding these incidents and determine if the personal data they hold has been affected. If necessary, consider reporting a data breach to the Information Commissioner's Office and we will use this information to inform our next steps. Organisations must notify the Information Commissioner's Office within 72 hours of becoming aware of a personal data breach unless it does not pose a risk to people's rights and freedoms. If an organisation decides that a breach doesn't need to be reported, they should keep their own record of it and be able to explain why it hasn't been reported if necessary. Now, another cyber attack which is of interest is the Latitude cyber attack. That happened earlier this year, I think it was in March. The cyber attack on Latitude, which is a financial services provider in Australia, uh, they revealed that they suffered a cyber attack in March. And they estimate now that the cost, in terms of the loss that they will sustain from it, for the current financial year will be anywhere between 95 million Australian dollars and 105 million Australian dollars. And finally this week, you may remember that in episode 47 of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, we reported that what was then described as a cyber event on Burton snowboards, well, that has now been uh, recognised to have been a full-on cyber attack where there was a data breach. Well, that's it for episode 61 of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. If you want to do so, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you'll hear from me all over again next Sunday, all being well, with the usual roundup of all things financial crime. Have a genuinely great week, everyone. Bye-bye.